Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Darsha Narvias, who is professor of psychology at the University of Notre Dame and focuses on moral development and flourishing from the from an interdisciplinary perspective, integrating anthropology, neuroscience, clinical development, and educational sciences. Dr. Narvia's current research explores how early life experience influences societal culture and moral character. One of her recent books, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom, won the 2015 William James Book Award from the American Psychological Association. She writes a popular blog for Psychology Today. Darsha Narvaez, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks so much, David. So this book, which is is terrific, and I recommend it to everyone, Neuro... I'm sorry, now I've lost it. Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality. Tell us about this book. Part of it, a big part of it, I think, is about factors other than genes that, that shape people. Is that That's right? right. It's, it's uh, a book uh, that it wasn't the one I intended to write, but it was an uh, exploration of what's gone wrong with uh, myself, actually starting there, and then also with society, and, and discovering that we didn't always act this way as the human species, um, and that what's the reason that we've shifted. So the book explores uh, my journey and figuring out why I would get so stressed out and, and uh, frozen in, when I panicked in front of people, and looking at the neurobiology of that and how that doesn't match up with what moral kind of beliefs about what morality is in Western scholarship. It didn't matter how you felt or what your emotions are usually. You know, it's about how you think and reason and all that. So the book is countering that perspective and saying, really, emotions make us, and they need to be well-shaped and well-guided in early life, especially in the first few years when our neurobiology is really very immature for us. We're, only, we're born with 25% of our brain volume at normal, full-term birth, and lots of systems come online and get shaped by experience after birth because we evolved this nice nest to support our, our characteristics, our human nature. Uh, it, this nest matches up with the maturational schedule of our offspring, like uh, as all animal nests do. And we can see now neuroscience gives us insight into why each of the practices are important. And I can go into the nest, but uh, I'll tell you more specifics about that. But Overall, then, we've shifted away from the nest, we've degraded it, and so then you end up with adults that are kind of stuck. Uh, they're, they're not fully developed in different ways, depending on when the trauma or undercare or abuse even occurred. And then they can't really function as um, insightful, wise adults because they've never developed, they've got too many gaps in their neurobiology, in their psychology, and then they create the world that we've come to now where we're destroying our habitat, which is very, very weird for a species to do. Uh, it is indeed. Uh, the, the, 
the divide that people think of between nature and nurture doesn't seem quite so sharp and clear in in your analysis of the numerous factors that shape a a, a young and growing human. That's correct. Um, uh, we are scheduled to be shaped moment by moment. Our, we've got thousands of synapses, the brain cell connections that develop each second. And so the kind of uh, biochemical marination that you're placed in is shaping how those synapses grow or don't grow. So if you're left to cry and isolated as a baby, which is very strange for a social mammal, uh, your brain just doesn't grow very well or it even melts the synapses that were growing or are supposed to grow. So you really end up with a very stress-reactive child uh, that and you don't really know always, always that you are stress-reactive because your brain comes to a situation with what Steve Poor just calls neuroception. You very automatically and quickly assess whether you feel safe or unsafe in that situation, and then you your whole orientation, your perceptions, your emotions, your thoughts, your uh, filtering of everything is shaped by how you, whether you feel safe or not safe. And we create all these people that feel initially very uh, automatically unsafe. And then that makes you, uh, that kind of feeling uh, is a, perhaps a mild stress response or a large one, uh, draws blood flow away from your higher order thinking. You can't think as well. And your heart isn't going to be open. You're not going to be open-hearted and compassionate in those situations as a way of being. So the book focuses on how uh, the way we are in the moment is really critical for our morality. You can't just be in your head reasoning and thinking and sitting like we professors like to do in the ivory tower and, you know, make good decisions, see how moral I am. (laughs) That's not how the way it works. It's face-to-face with others. It's how you are in the moment. Are you present, fully present with others? Or are you kind of conditioned by your past to be reactive to that person or this person or that categorizing them this way and labeling them that way? That's not freedom, and that's not morality at the highest sense. So when I'm trying to talk somebody out of a ridiculous, uh, scary rationale for yet another war, and I can't do it, it's not necessarily just because they've watched too much television that week, but but possibly also related to their their early child childhood and and pre childhood development. That's right. Yeah. So our parents and our caregivers shape our personalities in many ways. Um, despite people who say the contrary. <laughs> so even our grandparents' experience can be passed on to us epigenetically, meaning it, it uh, turns on or off our genes or uh, shapes their expression, and we can be anxious because our grandparents went through some terrible experience or our parents, and then we don't know why we're so anxious. Or our, our mother was stressed during our uh, time in the womb, And we end up being an irritable baby, which is what happens. And then, you know, the parents can't deal with that or the caregivers. And so you you don't get your needs met. And then you turn into a disagreeable person with, you know, less than optimal functioning. So my, my focus in our lab is on developmental optimization. We've slipped in our baselines for what we think is normal child care, what we think is normal kind of human nature and children and adults with normal health and what's normal for society to provide its citizens. 
it's all slipped down and we're kind of spiraling down still because we forget who we are. We've lost our imaginations for our, our potential as human beings, and we've lost our capabilities almost in many ways to provide the nurturing that we all need, and especially babies. We're speaking with Darsha Narvaez, whose book is called Neurobiology uh, and the Development of Human Morality. Uh, so if you look at the, the typical child-rearing uh, today, modern Western uh, child, and the typical child-rearing as, as far as we can understand it and as far as there is something typical of, of small bands of hunter-gatherers, uh, what are the differences? Yeah, these practices that we call now in my lab the evolved nest, these practices are really, by and large, at least 30 million years old. They're part of our social mammal heritage. Uh, humans have slightly modified them over overall, but really they're pretty standard, and they're found all over the world. And so they include soothing perineal experiences, so that means not a too stressful uh, gestational period, uh, calm birth experience. No, that means no separating the baby from the mother, no painful procedures. Uh, we violate that routinely in medicalized birth. So already you've, you're imprinting the brain there with stress, reactivity, and shaping them to be distrustful, which is uh, part of um, what's our problem today in, in the adult world. Uh, and so soothing perinatal experience, Breastfeeding, this is always a shocker. Our species, on average, is, uh, weans their babies at age four, and the range is something like two to eight years of breastfeeding. We think, oh, my God, what's going on with that? Well, it turns out that breast milk has thousands of ingredients. We hardly understand it. Uh, but it has all the building blocks of the immune system, which takes several years to develop, and so... Uh, breast milk provides that, and it, in any of the studies that are done, it's usually comparing three months of breastfeeding to three months of formula, <laughs> so right. there's not much, much going on there, so we don't really know what neuroscientifically happens with four years of breastfeeding, for example, but that's uh, related to IQ, intelligence, uh, all sorts of health um, outcomes, and so on. Should I keep going? Uh, sure, please. Okay. So that soothing birth experience is breastfeeding, responsiveness, that means meeting the needs of the child um, as a baby and keeping the baby calm, keeping them in an optimal arousal state so that they're marinated in the good, positive kinds of biochemistry that's going to help them grow optimally. If you separate a baby or you let them cry, you're making the biochemistry shift to a self-protective or survival systems, uh, and that's not the kind of marination that's going to optimize your growth. Gonna, uh, you're going to might stay alive and all, but you're not going to be your best self or grow the stuff that's supposed to grow at that time, and everything has sensitive periods for growing. Uh, then there's um, multiple adult caregivers. Uh, so babies need 24-7 touch, which is another a uh, piece of it, affectionate touch. They expect to be carried and held all the time because they're born 18 months early. We're, we look like fetuses. We act like fetuses till about 18 months. Our brain, our, our skull bones don't fuse until about that time. So 
our bodies are expecting to grow that brain, and what grows it is breastfeeding and positive touch. And so uh, multiple adult caregivers are going to help with this. It's just not a mom thing. It's not a mom and dad thing. We are what uh, Sarah Hurdy calls cooperative breeders, cooperative caregivers. It takes a village. That's our heritage uh, because of the great neediness of babies. And after a while, they, they are um, developing responsive relationships, mutually responsive relationships with all sorts of different people in, their, in the band that they're in. So it's not hanging out only with mom all day long isolated. That's very strange and weird. That kind of <laughs> conducive to mental illness. <laughs> yeah. uh, another one is um, self-directed free play. And that is where the child is able to do their own thing, run around uh, playing pretty much throughout childhood with multiple age playmates and in the natural world. So they get to know their place, their landscape, their relationships with the trees and the animals and the waters in the vicinity. And then lastly is a combination of social support for mother. Uh, moms are more responsive to their children when they feel supported uh, by the community. And the positive kind of social support for the child, the positive climate for growing, that they feel like they belong, they feel like they're wanted, they feel like they can have a positive impact on others, make them smile or laugh, and they just feel they're very, they're very embedded. So those are the aspects of the nest we study. I actually think the nest will last throughout life, uh, but we're studying it in the first six years. And, and what is the outcome of such uh, child rearing? Uh, you, you cite the work of some anthropologists uh, who visited people in Malaysia and Micronesia and elsewhere whose attitudes and, and beliefs and behaviors are almost almost unbelievably peaceful uh, and nonviolent to, uh, to, to some modern Western eyes. Is, is that what you get uh, as a result? Well, you get uh, what we. Well, let me just uh, tell you about our studies of kids, young children. We find that they are the kids who have more of the nest provided to them, are more self-controlled. They have more empathy for others. They have greater uh, conscience development. They are happier. They're less anxious or depressed. They misbehave less. Um, you know, uh, meaning that they behave in the right way for the situation. And uh, even we've asked adults about their uh, childhood nest, and they, we find that that's related to a better attachment, secure attachment, better mental health, less anxiety and depression, better perspective-taking, something we have a hard time seeing a lot in our country right now, where you are able to actually take on the perspective of someone else and, understand, and by that, doing, doing that, understand it better. And then um, our adults also are related. It gets these, the nest is related to uh, their more open-hearted morality rather than self-protected morality, which is what we see most of the time today. And so, <clears throat> oh, I forgot. I was going to say something else, but you want to rephrase your question? Well, I, I, I'm sort of wondering how we get to a society that doesn't accept things like like war and other viciously cruel programs. And, and I, I, I imagine in combination, the combination of better child-rearing practices with 
peace education uh, might get us there. Right. So the uh, neurobiological part is important, especially in the early years. And that's when these systems are setting themselves up, the stress response system, the immune system, your kind of social worldview. You, you, uh, you develop that before your language develops very strongly. So that first year of life, do you trust the world? Do you trust yourself? Are your signals responded to? Are, are your caregivers trustworthy? And that, uh, that's Eric Erickson pointed out that's the really critical thing in the first year of life. It's also the time for attachment to develop. Whether you feel secure in relationships, do you feel very distrusting or uh, worried about relationships? Uh, those things are implicit. And the Nazis, <laughs> you know, had a child-rearing manuals or advocated uh, breaking the child's spirit in those first couple of years before they'll, they, because they can't remember what happened, but you'll have control of them the rest of their lives because you've broken their spirit, you've made them so afraid that they will automatically then obey, obey whatever you tell them to do. So what we're doing now when we undermine baby care, which we do routinely in the States with trauma at birth, with leaving babies alone in cribs and alone to cry with sleep training, which is crazy for young babies, um, we leave them, and then we don't give them much breast milk, and we don't uh, carry them around with us all the time, and so on. And so you're setting up a child, a person, who's going to be stress-reactive, and that means they're either going to... So if you, let me just say, uh, if you leave a baby to cry, and you then finally do show up, they will learn to scream, but they will be learn to react quickly with anger. If you leave them longer than that... And their body will start to realize, oh, I can't keep screaming because I will die. So then they shut down and go into a catatonic state. And that's why people think sleep training works, because the baby finally does shut up. <laughs> but uh, you've now taught that child to freeze and, and go into a dissociated state. So when you raise kids to be either um, react, you can raise them to be reactive in various ways, and it depends on the timing and all. In general, uh, you can then end up with people who are will uh, be loyal all of a sudden to something that seems safe to them, uh, an ideology, will be attractive that makes them feel superior to others because they feel really deep down inferior and scared, but they can't admit it. Uh, and all sorts of psycho issues come up, but I'm uh, just mentioning a few here. Um, so... It's really important then to have the groundwork laid well in the neurobiological part in those first years. And then throughout life, though, through childhood, you want to have autonomy. We talk a lot about freedom in this country, but we don't really give it. And we control people from the get-go. And um, But you want that autonomy, but you also want to shape imagination. So in Native American communities, historically, uh, traditionally, they have... Elders who tell the stories about the, the tribe, the group, the clan, and um, and then they uh, children hear those stories and, and learn from the stories. They learn from imitating the elders on all sorts of rituals of gratitude and connection to the natural world, and they spend their life immersed in this kind of holistic way of being and living um, that is about getting along and being virtuous. It's really important to develop your own virtues and very much about 
it actually matches up a lot with East Asian uh, views of virtue development, Mencius, Confucius, others. <clears throat> so um, it's really important not to just focus on the neurobiological part. You've got to have the culture that shapes your imagination. What do you focus? Where is your attention put? Where does your culture put your attention? And right now in our culture, our attention is put on violence, aggression, and consumerism, right? I mean, that's, and so that's the great way for people who want money, <laughs> who want to make money off of us, to control us uh, and get money from us. So um, there's a whole long history of enslavement of human, human beings that, that this relates to, but Anyway. And, of course, we're told, and to various degrees, believe that this is all normal, inevitable, uh, there's no choice about it, that, uh, as you note in the book, that that we just expect children to be distressed, babies to cry, toddlers to have the terrible twos, uh, adolescents to go through uh, angst and turmoil, uh, and, and these are not actually inevitable things that are the human character or human nature. They're, they're particular to a society that develops them, right? That's right. And, and uh, we are, uh, poop, it's poo-pooed if you say otherwise, right? Oh, you're being romantic. Oh, you're being ridiculous. Oh, you know, all this stuff. But that's because they're ignorant about our history, our prehistory. They're ignorant about all the nations of so many societies that were and are peaceful, Right. Uh, they just aren't, don't know. Yeah, and but and people, I tell people, well, let's stop having wars, and they tell me, well, you can't. War is human nature, and I t- uh-huh. and I tell them, well, there isn't actually any such thing as human nature. It's just a handy excuse for whatever you want to excuse. But then I imagine you might might tell me that that peace is human nature, and I'll tell you the exact same thing. I see peaceful humans and warlike humans, and they're both human, aren't they? Well, um, yeah, so again, I'm, I'm, I, uh, certainly we see humans of all kinds right now, but I'm uh, suggesting that for optimal human functioning, warlikeness it really isn't part of that as much. I mean, sometimes you have to, you know, stand up for um, goodness, but uh, I think we are... If we're guided by wise elders, which we no longer really have very many of, um, they keep the young stallions who want to go to war uh, under control. They give them other things to do. Uh, they connect them, help them connect to the universe, which is what the Native American traditions of vision quests do. So you actually feel like, oh, I'm part of this whole thing, and I and your right hemisphere is well developed, which is the more um, a relationally attuned part of your brain, which we undermine when we don't provide that nest in early life. So you never really develop it well unless you could, excuse me, come back to it later, <laughs> uh, which you can do in therapy and doing all sorts of things like playing with kids face-to-face, grows the right hemisphere. But um, it's really, I think, important to realize that the range of what we think is normal human behavior has shifted We've got a much wider range of what um, what we think is okay or normal than in our past. So war came about, if you look at the archaeology and the anthropology, it came about from um, when the hierarchy developed, when cities developed. 
And before that, there really isn't war. There might have been raids or something or, you know, jealous rages or something like that. But it's really hard to find that war started more than uh, 5,000 years ago or so. Right. Well, and we've we, been around for 2 million years, so. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's not typical of, of human prehistory. But uh, but we have, a, 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 as you noted, a weird situation uh, at the moment uh, in which, in, in my view of morality, the only way a human being can be moral uh, is to be a radical activist for environmental uh, salvation and uh, and against nuclear proliferation uh, and war, or or we're done for. I I don't know if the morality if if we try to to duplicate the morality of of hunter gatherers in small bands, if that will end up being exactly what's needed at the moment. Yeah. So uh, these are things I'm still working on. I think what we need to do is ensure that our children have the optimal environment for their development in early life because we need their full potential to help us solve the problems we face. We're, we're running around with half-capable people now, right? And uh, So we have to figure out how to heal ourselves, perhaps through shamanic practices. Um, we have to also make sure imagination are tuned into the fact that we're all connected and we're all one. You know, that's enlightenment. Um, that we, how we imagine today is affecting how we behave and what we attract to ourselves. And I mean, it's the quantum world of, of all sort of uh, unconscious, implicit, um, non-manifest aspects that we kind of ignore in our society because science has told us it's irrational and irrationality is bad and all this, but that's not our nature either. Um, so uh, I think we have to remember that we are part of the whole. I'm reading uh, and studying right now Wendigo, or Wetiko, which is this infection that Native Americans have talked about for a long time, generation, that now um, Paul Levy is saying has infected the whole world, essentially, and it's a kind of a intra-psychic meme or a virus of how to think about um, the world is set up, and so it's, it sets you up, us against them, and um, it's a very fearful, controlling way of, uh, well, makes you feel separated and alone and, you know, stress-reactive. And so I'm, I'm studying that because they, he says that if you adopt the same approach as Wendigo does, which is kind of war, war against all, then you're in it. You're Wendigo already then. So there has to be a different way to heal ourselves than the way we got into this mess. We've just got about one minute left, so I so I take it that you you believe it's possible for people to to correct uh, things in themselves as well as to break a vicious cycle and start better practices with with uh, new generations. Yes, I do believe that. <laughs> we don't have much time left. You know, the Hopis uh, have said. Uh, that we're in our fifth world here. We've messed up the previous four. Uh, so we have a little bit of time here to kind of save this fifth world, and I think we can do it. 
Well, we have to try, and I highly recommend that uh, everyone listening get a copy of the book Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom by our guest Darsha Narvaez. Darsha, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. You're welcome. A pleasure. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.